1: Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. Flood insurance may seem like a dry topic, but if you get a direct hit from a storm and you don't have it, you might be swimming up to your ears in financial trouble. Most people have homeowner's insurance. It's a requirement if you hold a mortgage. But many people don't know that if your home is damaged by rain or high water, that insurance may not cover the cost to rebuild. And there are many changes in the way the federal government is looking at flood insurance. Changes that could hurt you squarely in the wallet. We're going to look at that today with our two guests. Brendan Rivers is an environmental reporter with our sister station, WJCT, in Jacksonville. And Jake Holhouse is president of HH Insurance, based in St. Petersburg. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. All right, Jake, you were uh, one of the speakers recently at a a flood insurance seminar in Treasure Island. Do you find that most of the people who go to these things are really under-informed about what flood insurance really
2: means? You know, I think it depends on the area. Um, within an area like Treasure Island, most people do understand what flood insurance is, because within Treasure Island, 100% of their properties are in what we would call a, a mandatory purchase flood zone. So that means that their flood zone starts with the letter A or the letter V. So if they have a mortgage, they have to carry flood insurance. You flip that to an area such as like Orlando, and you do one of these seminars. And then it's very common that my evacuation zone is my by flood zone and they are not the same thing. You know, a flood zone is basically uh, determining your, you know, level of, you know, water rise, whereas an evacuation zone is how easily can you, you know, escape in the event of of a disaster. So while they might be correlated to be similar, uh, there is often a difference. So I I think a lot of it does depend on what part of Florida you're talking to within uh, doing one of the presentations.
1: Right. Now, the, the federal government is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, insurer uh, for flood policies in the nation. Can you explain to our listeners what the National Flood Insurance Program is? And maybe we'll get into a little bit of the changes that have just taken
2: place, too. Absolutely. So when we talk um, National Flood Insurance Program, a lot of times it's shortened to the word NFIP, or you hear about FEMA flood insurance. And, and one of the big questions people have is, well, why is the federal government in flood insurance? And, you know, why is it that, you know, I'm paying for all of these people that live on the water to have flood insurance? So it's actually kind of the exact opposite. And so the FEMA flood program, NFIP, was originated around 1968 and really took off in about 1975. And what happened is in the early 1960s, we kept having natural disasters and FEMA would have to go in and clean up the entire natural disaster and pay for people that had a flood exclusion in their homeowners policy. So pretty much, I would say it's not 100%, but 99% of homeowners policies exclude damage for flooding, meaning naturally rising water. So FEMA would have to go in and pay for it. And that's where everybody in the Midwest was basically subsidizing Florida and Mississippi and those type of areas. So FEMA creates the National Flood Insurance Program and designates homes as being in a flood zone, meaning that if they have a mortgage they're required by statute to carry flood insurance and and pay a premium for it and so from let's call it 1975 through 2004 there's always enough premium within the program To pay off the claims. And so even when you have an event like Hurricane Andrew in 1992, there's still enough premium within that program to where they can cover all of their expenses and pay the claims and the premiums just kind of naturally go up with losses. And then we have 2005. And that's that shock loss of Hurricane Katrina that nobody ever expected to happen. And so at that point, you've got a program now at a $16 billion deficit. And then you go on from there and you have Hurricane Ike in 2008. And then you jump into Superstorm Sandy in 2012. And that basically puts a lot of pressure on the NFIP program. Because at that point, there's a program sitting out here with a $24 billion deficit within it.
1: Right. So uh, is the deficit that they are really racking up here, is that the prime motivator behind the recent changes that we have seen to the program that were just
2: enacted? It's really a a pretty big driver of it, right? So the long story short is you have in July of 2012, you have this act called the Bigger Waters Act gets signed. And what it does is it basically resets flood insurance and and authorizes the program for another five years. Now, a lot of us remember the Bigger Waters Act because if if you live in the coastal area, you remember that they talked about slab on grade type flood insurance going from $2,000 to $10,000 overnight. The other pieces that were bullet points within that Bigger Waters Act is one of them was we have to pay off the deficit from Hurricane Katrina and we have to modernize how rates are calculated and take into effect things such as sea level rise and and climate change happening within flood insurance. And so a lot of the changes that we're seeing today go back to the Bigger Waters Act and a lot of the Bigger Waters Act goes back to Hurricane Katrina. And, And so it's basically, you know, 15 years or so of, of basically formation occurring that's now creating a, a huge change uh, to the flood insurance program.
1: All right. Risk rating 2.0, it's kind of a dry kind of name there, but it, it packs a big wallet. Tell our listeners what are some of the biggest changes calculating how much you're going to pay for your flood insurance through risk rating 2.0?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So risk rating 2.0 is is really the first fundamental rating change to the NFIP really since the 1970s, right? And so essentially the way the NFIP works today is if you have a home that's in a flood zone AE, which is the majority of homes in flood zones. So letter A or letter V, V typically is VE, which we, we kind of joke and say that means very expensive flood zone. So That's the highest of high risk. And then AE is a high risk flood zone. So if you're in an AE flood zone as a homeowner, and your base flood elevation is 10 feet. So essentially what that means is that FEMA has drawn a flood map, and they say that, all right, you need to be at 10 feet or greater, and that's going to basically take you out of the floodplain. It doesn't take you out of the flood zone, but it takes you out of that floodplain. And so your front door is at 12 feet. So the problem of the NFIP program 1.0 rating is that a plus two in Monroe County, Pinellas County, and Orange County, relatively speaking, they all pay the exact same premium rate. And so the idea of risk grading 2.0 is, okay, we need to rethink about this a little bit and say that most of us can apply that Monroe County is probably the highest risk area for flood, Pinellas the second highest, and Orange the third highest within that three-county example. So what we're going to do is we're going to start to rate flood insurance based on distance to coastal water. Total value of home. Now the problem with total value of home is that in a flood insurance policy uh, that's within the NFIP, the maximum coverage that can be purchased for the house is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So when we say two hundred fifty thousand, it doesn't. If the house is worth two fifty, the most coverage they can get is two fifty. If it's a million dollar structure, the most coverage they can get is still two fifty. But we're going to start to charge that million dollar structure a significantly higher rating curve as a result result of being high value and then we're also going to charge on you know some other rating elements including elevations and things like that but it's basically incorporating each flood risk into its own rating profile so it's no longer grouped by zone to elevation difference within the zone it's now every risk stands on its own merit
1: so there must be some astronomical rate increases that people along the coast are facing here. Can you maybe share some stories about some of the, those increases you've been seeing?
2: Yeah, there are. And I think the, the big challenge that we see within risk grading 2.0 is that there's not enough weight within elevation of property. And so it's one thing to be coastal slab on grade that house is probably going to flood, right? And, and it's another thing to be coastal elevated and remove a lot of that flood risk. And so what we're seeing is that for a lot of homes that are elevated homes, and, and when we say coast, that doesn't just mean Gulf of Mexico or Atlantic Ocean. Coast can be any source of tidal water, including bays, including rivers, including lakes, anything along those lines that is a source of flood is, is charged for. You know, we've seen many examples, you know, I have one right now in Apollo Beach, which, you know, is in uh, Hillsborough County. It's a waterfront home, but it's not direct on the bay by any means or anything like that. And and their flood insurance rate is going from within NFIP from $480 to over $9,000 per year within NFIP. Wow. The flip side to that, Steve, is there's a private flood program out there which Technically, should be rated to the same actuarial soundness of the NFIP, right? Because if it's private flood, that means it's their capital on the line. So they are very, very confident within their rate that they're charging adequate premium for the risk. So you go 480 NFIP, over 9,000 on the new NFIP rates, and private flood for about 1,500 for the same risk. So that's where we're seeing some large discrepancies within the NFIP rating based on that higher value home because in that case it is about a million five house and so that's what's driving that risk up
1: all right so you know in this home in apollo beach that had a 20 to 30 you know, percent or times increase are you hearing stories or you have a feel for if anybody's going to be chased out of their home basically because it's, they can't afford it right
2: yeah. And I think that's one of the, you know, scary parts that we look at, right? And so when we talk about risk grading 2.0, what we see, if we look at it at a statewide level is we have 20% of Floridians are going to see an immediate rate decrease. Well, that's good news. That means the 20% have overpaid for flood premium. The bad news is that means 80% are going to see an increase. So when, when risk grading 2.0 comes out, Um, In March 2021, a rate chart gets released. And on this rate chart, what it does is it shows that 68% of Floridians are going to see a rate increase up to about $120 per year. You then have an additional 8% that are going to see it between 120 and 240 per year. And then you have 4% that go above that. So essentially to us as an insurance agent, we're seeing this and it says 96% of current policyholders will either see you know, a rate decrease or up to $240 per year of an increase. Well, that sounds really good, right? The downside to that is That as we think about that $480 example, within an NFIP flood policy, there is an 18% rate cap. What we still don't know is what the long-term effect of this is over a 10 to 20-year time horizon. And so do I think that somebody will get immediately priced out of their house? No, that's probably not going to happen because we have this 18% rate cap. However, if somebody is living in their house today and they go to sell their house, and the buyer gets a flood quote and sees that it's going to $9,000, they might not be as motivated to want to purchase the home because they're starting to look at that affordability aspect on it. So I guess it's it's a two-part answer. Today, no, I don't see that that happening because it goes 480 to like, you know, 550 type range, right? Like still not going to price you out of your house. But in 10 years is now it's 4500 and you're on a fixed income, that is the downside that could happen on it.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that uh, this affects not just, you know, the Gulf side and the ocean, but also low-lying areas, maybe even floodplains. So uh, are, are we seeing maybe some people in lower-income areas that are going to get hit by this, and maybe a lot of them are just in no position to afford these increases?
2: I, I think that's absolutely correct, and, and you know, I think the, the challenge is, is that, you know, for waterfront homes, people want to live there, they're going to pay it. The guy that I worry about when I think about this is the person that's on a fixed income in a non-waterfront type neighborhood that is in a a floodplain, but they've even elevated their home. So as an example, we have a customer and he built his house seven feet above the floodplain in a a neighborhood on the eastern side of St. Petersburg. His flood rate goes from $422 to $4,900 on a new construction home that's not on the water, it's not high value. And we've seen other ones. And, and here's the really crazy one, Steve, is I have another customer who actually received a FEMA grant to knock down and rebuild his house. As a result of that, he knocked down and rebuilt his house within the floodplain that, that FEMA basically encouraged, like, hey, we, want, we don't want to kick you out of your house. But at the same time, like, you have flooded five times on your slab on great home. And so we're going to help finance for you to lift up. And he goes from 422 to over 3500. And so those are the ones that I really worry about are not the the big homes. They're those moderate homes that are not on the water that have, you know, followed the law by elevating their house. And now they're still over 10 years seeing huge rate increases.
1: Yeah. And how about renters as well, too? People who live in apartment complexes, condos, that sort of thing. Um, They are probably going to be passed on the cost of this, too, right? Uh, You're seeing instances of that.
2: So basically for a condo association, they purchase flood coverage through their HOA. And so essentially the HOA buys the coverage and then passes it on via monthly uh, fees for living in the condo association. And we're seeing condos get, you know, take 5X to 10X type rate increases in these coastal type areas. So condos will not see the flood rate direct to the condo unit owner, but they will see the flood rate come through via their HOA fees, increasing on an annual basis to cover the increased cost of flood.
1: You know, a lot of people believe that, you know, people like you and me, well, maybe not you, but at least people like me, are subsidizing the cost of people to live on these palatial homes on the coast, which, you know, with climate change and rising sea levels, is only going to keep getting worse. Um, Do you believe that this might allay the concerns of some people that they're not paying their fair share, that we're, you know, I say we, some some of the people who live inland, lower-income people, are unfairly subsidizing the lifestyles of people who could afford to pay their own way.
2: So I think there's two ways to look at it, right? And I think that one of them is, so if your coverage limit is $250,000 and your rate goes to $10,000 and you're paying off your, your uh, coverage every 25 years to be in the house, that might be a little bit to the other side. I think we can all agree that $480 is too cheap for flood insurance on a waterfront home, regardless of elevation, but 10,000 is probably the other side of that. So then I get into the concern and this is kind of outside of insurance, but more so to risk management at a community level, right? Is so then a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to build new because I'm not going to really see the rate decrease as much as, as it needs to, to justify uh, building a new house. So I'm going to keep my low lying house and I'm just going to self-insure it. So then what happens really fast, you have a hurricane calm and now you don't have NFIP premium sitting there and NFIP paying the claims. So now we as a community end up actually subsidizing it even more. So I, I think that it's in a very short term look that that is a potential, but in a long term look as to the tax basis that supports all of us, you know, community wise that are on some of these homes. And now there's no NFIP funds to, to pay for people to rebuild. So now we have to subsidize it even more. And, and so I think that yes and no, it, it really just depends on on the picture that you look at.
1: All right. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, Jake, anything else you want to have any final thoughts on this topic that you'd like to share with us?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think that what I'd say is if you're in a flood zone, this is really, really big changes for those who currently live in the house you're not going to see the change happen until after April 1st, 2022. So April 1st, 2022, then from a renewal basis, it will start rolling onto your renewal. So if you renew in August, you're not going to see it until August of 2022 in terms of the changes. But I would encourage you to inform yourself and talk to your current insurance agent as to what does it look like for your house? And that way you can start to plan and make long-term plans for, does it potentially price you out of your house? And you should know that now compared to in 10 years from now. And so I would encourage you to start talking to your insurance agent and understanding how these changes affect you personally.
1: All righty. Thank you very much for the advice. Jake Wholehouse is president of HH Insurance based in St. Petersburg. Thanks so much for being on Florida Matters. Thanks, Steve. We're talking all things flood insurance on Florida Matters. We'll be right back with a look at climate change after this short break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Steve Newborn. We're taking a look at the changes in the federal flood insurance program and how that is being affected by climate change. We're talking with Brendan Rivers, an environmental reporter with our sister station, WJCT Public Radio in Jacksonville. Welcome to Florida Matters, Brendan.
0: Thanks for having me, Steve.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So you've been doing a bunch of stories on flood insurance and the risk rating 2.0, which is such a federal bureaucratic sounding name. Well, a lot of people have said that the whole idea of having national flood insurance merely subsidizes for rich people, for lack of a better word, to be able to build on the coast with their beautiful views of the water, and the rest of us have to subsidize the cost when a hurricane comes through and such. Uh, so, do you believe that this adjustment in the in the ratings and the risk ratings and in the premiums that are charged? are going to kind of maybe alleviate people's concerns about that, that makes it more fair that we're not unfairly subsidizing, you know, richer people on the coast.
0: I definitely think that this should help address that concern. And that's something that FEMA is pointing to as a as, uh, sort of justification for implementing this program. Now, The this new risk rating system is, is going to make the premiums tied specifically to the risk profile of the individual property instead of having that um, sort of group rate for, for homes in a particular flood zone. So I, I think in that sense, yes, it, it, it should make those expensive homes on the, on the coast, see their premiums rise a lot more than the, the less expensive homes, the more uh, middle-class homes that you see just sort of in that same area, but maybe not necessarily right on the coast.
1: Well, you know, another argument is that a lot of people believe that we shouldn't be building in these floodplains and along the coast to begin with, right? Um, with the risk of global warming and rising sea levels, is just going to keep getting worse and worse. Um, do we foresee maybe a risk rating 3.0 and 4.0, kind of like when Microsoft comes out every couple of years with a new program? <laughs> uh,
0: that I don't know the answer to. Uh, it, it's, it's certainly possible, but I mean, the question right now is, is, risk rating 2.0 actually going to survive because there are so many elected officials who are already coming out and speaking against it. Uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, I think recently sent a letter to Joe Biden basically telling him to stall uh, the the implementation of risk rating 2.0 because he's concerned about what it will mean for uh, policyholders who are seeing huge premium increases. And we've seen in the past when uh, there have been efforts to fix this program, politicians go back on it. They, they get rid of it. Uh, so in, in 2012, uh, Congress passed what's called the Bigger Waters Flood Insurance Reform Act. And this was really the first attempt to really fix some of these major problems that have been plaguing the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, it, it required a lot of things. It required FEMA to produce updated floodplain maps, improve local building code enforcement, and get rid of insurance subsidies for properties uh, and move toward charging premiums that more accurately reflect uh, risk. But just a little over a year after they passed this in 2012, they passed uh, another law, the Menendez-Grimm Homeowner Insurance Affordability Act, which rolled back a lot of the strongest provisions in the Bigger Waters Act, uh, kind of putting the National Flood Insurance Program back to where it, it, it is now. Um, so, I, And, and there's, there's lots of research that's been done that kind of shows elected officials in the US tend to not get behind measures to uh, prevent things. They, they don't get behind mitigation effort, uh, but they do support things like uh, disaster relief. So the, those, those big relief packages to help people fix all the damage that was done after a disaster. Um, and I think we're just kind of seeing the same thing. And and just kind of tangentially, it's, I, I always find it fascinating that when we're talking about climate change, a lot of these things very much mirror what we're seeing with the coronavirus pandemic. It's people being resistant to these mitigation efforts, so vaccines and mask mandates, but they're very much about supporting these things that can help after the the problem has already struck.
1: Right. Clean, clean up the mess, basically, after it's all done. Um are we seeing any other, uh, you know, opposition in other states to this too? I, I believe in New Jersey you, you've you written that the governor has tried to restrict coastal development and didn't get anywhere, right? He was stymied by the land developers who seem to have a lot of the money, right? Um, are we are we seeing opposition in other states as well to this risk rating
0: 2.0? Yeah, definitely. Um, I know I, I looked at, Two things uh, when I was working on on my story. One was there was just some city council in Texas that unanimously passed some non-binding resolution just kind of in opposition to this change. And uh, Representative Steve Scalise from Louisiana is, is working pretty hard to oppose this program. And I think there's all these other major political actors are, are coming out in opposition to this. I think Chuck Schumer recently said he's opposed to it. So it's... All across the country, people are not necessarily happy about this. I mean, it's, it's increasing premiums. It's, it's higher costs for people. And we are in an economy still where a lot of people are struggling. That's understandable. But at the same time, this, this program is, is, is broken, basically, as it is. And something has to be done about it. Because if we keep doing what we have been doing, which is just these periodic reauthorizations of the program, not actually addressing the problem the amount that this program owes is just going to continue to grow as climate change feels worse and worse disasters. Uh, so, I mean, something has to change. Well, I don't know if this change is going to stick yet. We'll, we'll see, but it's going to end up costing more down the road if something's not done now to address this.
1: Well, Brendan, people usually have alternatives. Um, Yeah, is there private flood insurance? Is that affordable? Are we seeing the rates for that go up too as well?
0: Uh, That I don't know the answer to. There is private flood insurance that's available, but I think it's like ninety percent of the flood insurance policies in the U.S. come from the National Flood Insurance Program. So this is far and away, the the biggest player in this sphere. Um, And Florida alone, there's, I think, over 1.7 million policyholders with the National Flood Insurance Program. So there are private insurers out there that are offering it. I'm not sure how the the prices compare, um, because I was very much focused on the National Flood Insurance Program here. But I I know a lot of people think maybe we could find a way to to get private insurers more involved in flood insurance. And maybe that would be one way to help address some of the, the problems with the, the federal program.
1: Uh, it kind of mirrors the uh, the homeowners uh, insurance uh, in Florida with citizens property insurance, a state you know, uh, insurer of last resort. A lot of people went to that and so many people were flocking to that that they uh, kept raising the rates. So the private insurance would be more palatable. So maybe perhaps we'll see something like that in the future as well.
0: Maybe. I think that's part of the hope, but I think a lot of people are worried that because this risk rating 2.0 is going to cause flood insurance premiums to rise, it might actually do the opposite. We might see people dropping it. Uh, and if that's the case, that will drive premiums even higher. So we'll, we'll have to see what, how this plays out.
1: So, uh, Brenda, tell me about the congressional reauthorization of this program. How, where's that on the whole pipeline?
0: Yeah, so on September 30th, which was the deadline to reauthorize it, President Biden signed legislation that was passed by Congress to extend the National Flood Insurance Program until December 3rd of this year. So now Congress will again have to reauthorize the program in a few months. And this has historically typically been how this program survives. is every several months, every year or so, they do these short-term reauthorizations. So yeah, we'll we'll see what happens between now and, and December if uh, this risk rating 2.0 system sticks and if they make any other changes to the program.
1: All right. Thank you uh, very much for your insight and comments. Brendan Rivers is a reporter with WJCT Public Radio in Jacksonville. Brendan, thanks so much for being on Florida Matters.
0: Of course. Thanks for having me, Steve.
1: And that's it for today's show. We've been talking with Brendan Rivers, an environmental reporter with our sister station, WJCT Public Radio in Jacksonville, and Jake Holhouse, president of HH Insurance, based in St. Petersburg. Thanks so much for listening. Our producer is Denora Prevost. I'm Steve Newborn. Thanks for listening, and join us next week again on Florida Matters.